Well, tonight we're going to be looking at the New Testament character Barnabas. Barnabas, a beacon of optimism. Now, as we look at Barnabas, just to give you a, 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 a layout for how we're going to approach our study, we're going to notice with Barnabas five, five qualities that stand out as we look at the New Testament testimony of this very important individual around the Apostle Paul. We're going to note his devotion to the destitute. We're going to see how he has has a special affinity to help those who are needy. Secondly, we're going to note his advocacy of the ostracized. His advocacy of the ostracized. He's got a special place in his heart for those who have been shunned, and he's going to be the guy that will build bridges, and we'll look at that this evening as well. Number three, we're going to note his love for the lost. Often this is missed in studying the New Testament character Barnabas, but Barnabas had a tremendous passion to bring the gospel to the lost world, and we'll see that this evening. Uh, number four, we'll also see a negative in Barnabas's life. Yes, our heroes have faults, and we're going to look at one, and Scripture isn't silent on some of the faults of our heroes. And we're going to notice a fault with Barnabas in, in that he expresses at one point in his life some cowardice before the crowd. And then, fifthly, we're going to notice his fidelity to the flawed. Now, before we get into those qualities that we see presented to us about this individual Barnabas. Let me just give you some background about Barnabas. Some background about Barnabas. Barnabas is one of the most frequently mentioned characters in the book of Acts, where his name appears 23 times. So if you look at the book of Acts, next to the Apostle Paul, Barnabas is one of the top, the the most mentioned individuals in Luke's history of the early church. But because Barnabas is so often mentioned together with the Apostle Paul, Barnabas is often lost in the shadows. Now, I don't think Barnabas minded this at all, as we're going to see. We're going to see his character. I don't think he cared at all. But for us who study Scripture, I think we miss the good things about Barnabas because we do often gravitate so quickly to look at Paul, his companion. And that has led one scholar to say this, one cannot resist the feeling that Barnabas is not properly rated by modern Christians. And this past week, as I have been going through my studies on this individual, I can certainly attest to that. I certainly have a new appreciation for Barnabas now as I look at his life, a new a new value for him, and, and I found in Barnabas, in many of the qualities of his life, uh, a standard to follow. M- moreover, when we talk about Barnabas, there's a few texts that stand out that give us some other background figures, and I want to cover this before I start to get into some of these key issues of his life. Acts chapter 4, verse 36 really summarizes well some of the basic facts about Barnabas. Who was Barnabas? Well, Luke says in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, he says this, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who is also called Barnabas by the apostles, which 
translated means son of encouragement. So the man that we call Barnabas is actually given a different name at birth. His his actual given name is the name Joseph. And we read here that Joseph was a Levite of Cyprian birth. And that means, as a Levite, he was of the tribe of Levi. We've studied Paul a little bit already. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Barnabas was a Levite. He was, he was of the tribe of Levi. Now, just remember a little bit of your Old Testament history. As a member of the tribe of Levi, Barnabas wasn't exactly part of the priesthood, but Barnabas would have been very familiar with all of the the events surrounding the temple because it was the Levites' duty to really care for the vicinity of the temple and all the activities that took place. The priests would do the actual sacrificing and so on and so forth, but the Levites did these kinds of things. Levites would would make sure that there was always wood for the sacrifices. The Levites would would often help the people bringing their sacrifices to the altar to to, to get ready for the sacrifice system and and, and a Levite would help in that. Levites would, would guard the area around the temple and so on and so forth. So Barnabas, being a Levite, would have been very, very familiar with all of the trappings that surrounded that, that temple. We also read that he was Cyprian by birth. In other words, even though he was a Jew, he was a diaspora Jew. He was born not in Jerusalem, but he was born in Cyprus, and that meant that he would have been what we would call a Hellenistic Jew. He, he grew up in a Greek society, not in the Judean culture there around Jerusalem, but a little ways removed from Judea, there in the island, on the island of Cyprus. Barnabas, the name by which we know him, was his nickname. And it probably means son of a prophet. That's Probably best that if, if we would translate it most literally, son of a prophet. But the apostles took that term, Barnabas, and, and, and Luke translates it as son of encouragement. That was his nickname, not his given name. And it was a name, as we'll see, that was given to him because of who Joseph was by his character, by his conduct. Now, I want you to notice for just a moment the interesting thing about this title, Son of Encouragement. The apostles gave it to him. He's the Son of Encouragement. This word for encouragement comes from a a Greek construction, a compound word, which means essentially to call alongside of. So the Greek word for encouragement had the idea of of someone who comes alongside another person to lift their spirits. Someone who comes alongside another person to help them, to embolden them to live a certain way and to believe a certain thing. That's really what this Greek word encouragement means. To come alongside, to embolden someone who may be faltering, to embolden them in belief or in course of action. And that's what Joseph was called as a nickname. He is a person who comes alongside and lifts the spirits. He's a person who comes alongside and emboldens others to do 
what they have been called to do. And this is a very important title because it's related to a title that we know used elsewhere with respect to the Holy Spirit. You remember John chapter 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus in those chapters, as he gives his farewell address to his disciples, says that he is going to send a helper. And that title helper comes from the same root idea as encourager. Someone who is called alongside to lift the spirits and to embolden the person to action they thought would otherwise be impossible. And so even at the very beginning, we can see that this title is very important. Joseph is this individual who at the very early part of his life sets himself apart as a man who comes alongside and lifts others' spirits. There's some more interesting facts that we can learn about Barnabas before we look at his particular qualities. In Colossians 4 verse 10, Paul makes a a reference to Barnabas, and he says that Barnabas has a cousin named Mark, whom we know as John Mark. And this is the same John Mark that authors the second gospel, the gospel of Mark. And this, as we're going to see, is the same John Mark who early in his life is going to be one who actually abandons Paul on, in his ministry and ba- abandons even his cousin Barnabas. So this individual, John Mark, is very interesting. We're going to study him next week, but we can know from this text already that Barnabas had a cousin. He was related to John Mark. And if we would read in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, John Mark's mother... Uh, was a was an important figure in the early church. She she owned a home in Jerusalem, and the early church would meet there. So in Acts chapter twelve, verse twelve, we we realize that that Peter goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark. There were a lot of Marys in that day, popular name among the Hebrews, but Mary in this case is the mother of John, who is also called Mark. So this Mary in Acts twelve, verse twelve. The mother of Mark is therefore the aunt of Barnabas. So we can kind of put together some of these familial relationships that, uh, that, that we see. So Barnabas is related to a cousin named John Mark. John Mark's mother, Barnabas's aunt or aunt, is this lady named Mary who serves as a host or hostess to the early church there in Jerusalem. We can say also just a few words about Paul's relationship to to Barnabas. And and I'll go through this very, very quick. And I'll send it to you in the notes because we don't really have time to get through it. But if we look at the timeline of Paul's life and then put over it the timeline of Barnabas's life, we essentially see that Barnabas comes onto the scene in church history a little bit before Paul's conversion. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in just a few moments. You can see it in the red. We're going to look at something called Barnabas's financial gift. It comes at a time a little bit before Paul's conversion, when Paul was actually an enemy of the church. And then if we, we can go through all that red font on the screen, and you can see all the different key things that Barnabas was involved in. And according to church history, Barnabas actually is martyred in AD 61 in Cyprus. Now, we don't know whether that's really the case, but that's the best evidence that we have from history that 
Barnabas is actually martyred about five years before Paul. Now, I'll send this to you in the notes. I won't spend much time on this. Now, let's go to these five, these five qualities that I wanted you to note in Barnabas's life. First of all, let's note his devotion to the destitute. His devotion to the destitute. Now, I want us to look at a scene that shows this devotion to the destitute. Luke records for us a very important event that happens in the life of the early church related to Joseph or related to Barnabas. And we've already read part of that. Let me read it again. Acts chapter 4, verse 36 to 37 reads this. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, that's an interesting statement. What is involved there? Well, if we would look at the, uh, at the context there, first of all, we would, we would note that, as I've mentioned already in this series, the Jews who became believers in Jesus as the Messiah in those early years of the church were ostracized, were excommunicated by their social circles. They, as Jews, believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Their families kicked them out. They had no support. And so these these Jewish believers gather together in the church, and, and they have nothing left. Everything's gone because they've been expelled from their families. Well, they come to the church, and the church realizes that it's the duty of the entire congregation to come together to share whatever resources they have so that no one would go hungry. And that's what was happening in the early church. And we find that Barnabas is introduced through this situation. And Luke records that Barnabas or or Joseph, he has a tract of land. Now he's a Levite. And if you know anything about Old Testament history, Levites actually weren't supposed to own land. The law actually forbid it. The Levites were to trust solely on the Lord, and they weren't given any inheritance. Now we say, well, how did Barnabas get land? We really don't know, but he had it. It's also important to know that Jeremiah, a prophet in the Old Testament, he actually was commanded to buy land himself. So we we note that there's a little bit of flexibility with this law, but in any case, by the time we get to Barnabas, he owns a tract of land. Maybe it was in Cyprus, and some have suggested that it might have been even as small as a tiny burial plot in Jerusalem. Whatever the case, the text here suggests that he sold the property and then he brought all the money of that property that he owned and he put it at the apostles' feet and said, here it is, and the intent, of course, was to give it to the apostles to take care of the needy, to take care of the destitute, to take care of those who had nothing left. This is Barnabas. He had a devotion to the destitute. And what we can see from this scene is that already, we, at, at the earliest stage, we, we read of one who related to his possessions more in terms of stewardship rather than ownership of stewardship rather than ownership, so that when believers had urgent needs, he knew that he was a steward of the things that God had given to him, and he could use those things to help those 
who are in great dire need. And this is what made Barnabas, first of all, a man of encouragement, son of encouragement, is that recognizing what God had put into his life, it was all about stewardship, and he was ready to use whatever he could to help the downcast, to help the downtrodden in the church, to come alongside and lift their spirits. As one scholar said, our first picture of Barnabas is that of a man of generous sympathies with the common people in spite of his more aristocratic affiliations. He, was, he had more in common with the general people. He had more of a love for them than to maintain his aristocratic affiliations. That's his devotion to the destitute. Let's look at another quality that we find as we look at the, uh, the example of, of Barnabas, and we see that Barnabas also was noted by his advocacy for the ostracized. Not only does he have a devotion to the destitute, he advocates for the ostracized. And we're going to see this in two different scenes. Two different scenes show Barnabas's advocacy for the ostracized. The first one had to do with Gentile believers. Now, if we read Acts chapter 11, verses 19 and following, I'll just summarize it. You can go back and read it later. In Acts chapter 11, Luke says that the persecution of Paul, when Paul was an unbeliever persecuting the church, drove believers north, among other places, drove them north to the city of Antioch in Syria. Now, up until this point, the church was Jewish. But the believers who are spread by the persecution go up north to Antioch and some of these scattered Jewish believers begin preaching the gospel to Gentiles, to pagans on the street. And an amazing thing happens. This has never been done before. Just preaching to Gentiles on the street. An amazing thing happens is that these Gentiles, all of a sudden, these Gentiles who had never associated with Israel, had never taken Israel's God as their God, all of a sudden they're struck to the heart and they start saying, yes, your Messiah is my Lord. Your Messiah is my Savior. Your Messiah died for my sins. And a, and a great revival breaks out there in Antioch and a Gentile church forms. Now you have to remember something. Up to this point, the church was all Jewish, led by Jewish leadership comprised of Jews and those who associated with the Jews. But this was different. This was a new church. And this marked an important moment in the development and expansion of the church where Gentiles, these are Greeks, who began turning to the Lord apart from any identification with the Jewish people. Now that obviously raises the question in Jerusalem. Wait a minute, what do we do with this church that has just started in Antioch, not by any efforts or leadership of our own. What do we do with this church? Is this a real deal? So they need to send someone up to investigate. Who do they choose? They choose the son of encouragement. If there'd be anybody who would believe the best, it would be Barnabas. So Barnabas, go. And Barnabas goes up to Antioch. And the expression or the description that Luke gives us is amazing. It says that when Barnabas arrived, he witnessed the grace 
of God. This is a Jew sent by Jewish leadership to a Gentile congregation, and they're worshiping Jesus as Lord. Barnabas shows up. He witnesses the grace of God. He rejoices, and it says he began to encourage. Same word. Barnabas was an encourager. He didn't come to try and stop it and say, listen, this has to be under the leadership of the Jewish uh, apostles in Jerusalem. He didn't say, listen, stop. You first must become Jews in order to become Christians. No, he comes, he witnesses the grace of God. He comes, he rejoices at what he saw. And he began to encourage. And it's interesting to note that there in Acts chapter 11, verse 24, Luke pauses for just a moment in his history. He stops and he gives this editorial comment He makes a statement about Barnabas. And he says this in response to Barnabas's response to what was going on in Antioch. He said, he was a good man. He was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith. A.T. Robertson says this, Barnabas was able to rise above his Jewish prejudices and to recognize the change wrought in the lives of these Greeks. He saw that a new era had come, that God had broken down the middle wall of partition and had saved these Greeks without their becoming Jews. Another writer said this, instead of crushing the movement of the church at Antioch, into the Gentile world, Barnabas identified himself with it and became its leader. Here again, Barnabas was true to the characteristic attitude of his life. He was an encourager. I'm going to skip this one slide. I'm going to move to another scene here that shows Paul's advocacy of the ostracized. It has to do with Paul himself. The very first time when Barnabas comes into contact with Paul. This happened after, in in chronology, it happened after the Antiochian church situation where Barnabas had been sent up there and had approved and affirmed the Gentile church. He's back and and has this opportunity to, to support the ministry of Paul. Now, go back in Acts chapter, to Acts chapter 9, verse 26. We read this about Paul. When Paul had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Now, step back a little bit in time and remember what had gone on. We've talked about this already. Paul had become a serious, fierce opponent of the church. He was breathing out murderous thoughts. He was taking believers into prison and even condemning them to death. On one day, he decides to go and pursue them up to the city of Damascus, and he leaves Jerusalem. And for the most part, those in Jerusalem didn't know what happened. Well, we do. On the road to Damascus, Paul is miraculously, you might even say unbelievably, converted to Jesus Christ. But, but Paul stays there for three years in, 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 in Damascus and the region around Damascus. He doesn't come back to Jerusalem. He kind of falls off the radar. 
Nobody really knows what he's doing. And then all of a sudden, three years later, Paul shows up. And you can just imagine that three years hasn't been enough to erase the memories of Stephen and of Paul standing there approving to the martyrdom of Stephen. And now Paul shows up and he wants to associate with the leadership of the church, the church that had gone underground. And and certainly it would not be unheard of for someone to try and infiltrate the church and pretend to be a sheep, but just a sheep and who's a, a really a wolf has just donned the sheep's clothing. And it was the duty of the apostles to protect this defenseless church. So you can understand that on their part, they are going to protect the flock. There is no way we are going to, 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 to allow this man into our congregation. That's what the disciples were saying. So the church was saying, Paul is an imposter. This is not real. Something is fishy here. The Sanhedrin, which Paul had interacted with before, which had given Paul his authority to persecute believers, undoubtedly the Sanhedrin was saying, what's up with this guy? We don't know where he went for three years. He's a traitor. No one wants to associate with this man, Paul. No one. And you can understand why. If you have had any association with, with, with the underground church and in any context where there's persecution, you stay away from people like Paul. They're dangerous. But Acts chapter 9, verse 27 is a powerful testimony to Barnabas. Very first word of verse 27 says this, but, but Barnabas, but Barnabas took hold of him, brought him to the apostles and described to them how he, that is Paul, had seen the Lord on the road to Damascus and how He, that is the Lord, had talked to Paul. And how at Damascus, Paul had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas was the first one to believe Paul's testimony. Barnabas was the one who took hold of him. Literally, that verb that's used there means to take hold of the hand. Can you imagine that? This is not just arranging an appointment over email. This is taking him by the hand and saying, saying, Paul, I believe you. I'll take you to the disciples. I'll take you there. And what's amazing to note here is that Barnabas' courageous act was important because it fostered a unity between the top leaders of the church. Just think for just a moment if those apostles had never extended fellowship to Paul and he went away, what would have happened? We would have had a splintered church, splintered right from the very beginning, right at the very top. Barnabas being the son of encouragement, Barnabas being this one who lifts spirits and advocates for the ostracized, he builds the bridge, he takes the hand of one and brings it to the hand of another. This is Barnabas. One writer said this, it is a high sort of courage to champion the cause of a discredited man. There's anyone discredited on all fronts. It was Paul. Hated by the the Sanhedrin as a traitor, considered suspicious by the church as an imposter. 
Barnabas believed the best and brought Paul and the apostles together. Another writer said this, it was he, Barnabas, who appreciated Paul. It was to him that the church owes the most extraordinary of her founders. Among the causes of the faith of the world, we must count the generous movement of Barnabas, stretching out his hand to the suspected and forsaken Paul. The profound intuition which led him to discover the soul of an apostle under that humiliated air. The frankness with which he broke the ice and leveled the obstacles raised between the convert and his new brethren. Another commentator says this, the warmth of the testimony on Barnabas's behalf is unusual even in acts and surely indicates a man of rare quality, a community builder able to promote and sustain warm and constructive personal relationships. You know why Joseph was called son of encouragement. Let's look at another attribute of Barnabas, his love for the lost. And this is fairly self-apparent when we really start to read the text. Let's look at another scene, scene four. Scene four in in this unfolding uh, history of this person, Barnabas. We read in Acts chapter 13, this is several years later now, several years later, we come across Barnabas again, and, and now Barnabas is serving alongside Paul. Barnabas is serving alongside Paul. And as they're serving together, as we read in Antioch, they were ministering and and praying to the Lord and fasting. And the Holy Spirit said this, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, the church laid their hands on them and they sent them on their way. So being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went. Now, what's important to note here is the order of the names. What's the order of the names? Barnabas and Saul. At this point in church history, Barnabas is the most mature saint. He's been in Christ the longest. He has the most ministry experience. And then the Holy Spirit says to the church, now we need to send out a missionary team to take the gospel to the other, to the extent of the Roman Empire. He says, set apart Barnabas and Saul. Not Saul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul. And for the first part of this missionary Endeavor, the very first missionary journey in church history, where you have a missionary team sponsored by a church with the specific responsibility of planting churches, it is Barnabas who is the leader. And he's the leader because he had a love for the lost. And so when they go to the shore to step on, onto the boat to go to Cyprus to evangelize Cyprus, Barnabas is really the first person to put his foot on the boat. Saul follows him. And that's the case until they finish evangelizing Cyprus. But what's interesting to note is that in Acts chapter 13, there is a transition that takes place. In Acts chapter 13, the leadership changes. For the first part of the missionary journey, Barnabas is the leader. But now Luke transitions and now he says, Paul and his companions. 
There in Cyprus, an important leadership transition had been made. Some even suggest that Mark left because the leadership changed from his cousin Barnabas to Paul. But what we see is that Barnabas, no matter what happens with leadership, he does not abandon the mission. He does not abandon the mission. Barnabas' love for the lost allows him to continue even though Paul has now assumed the place of leadership. It reminds us of this one saying. I like it. It says this, It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Think about that. We don't read any account of jealousy on Barnabas' part. No resentment. From all we can tell, Barnabas gladly allows Paul to take on the leadership, and Barnabas assumes the role of second fiddle. One one scholar said this, there's no sign of resentment on the part of Barnabas as he sees his associate, his assistant, take the lead. After all, Paul is the pride of Barnabas, and he can rejoice that God has allowed him to bring to the front this great exponent of the faith. Let's look at another scene, scene number five, and it And it helps us understand Paul's cowardice before the crowd. Paul's cowardice before the crowd. Now, this is the negative thing. Some of our tendency is to always elevate our heroes to the point of perfection. Scripture doesn't do that. There's only one true hero. That is Jesus Christ. There's only one who is perfect. That is Jesus Christ. And we see even with someone like Barnabas, we see him falter. Now, Barnabas, as a rule, was a man of courage, and we could read his courage at the Jerusalem council. As he and Paul stand together in defense of the gospel of grace. I won't cover that now. You can read Acts chapter 15, verse 1 to 4, and see how both Paul and Barnabas stand against the threats against the gospel, and they stand courageously. And they go to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem council, and they stand courageously for the gospel. Barnabas was, in general, a man of courage. But as I said, even our heroes stumble. You see, what happens after the Jerusalem council, in Acts chapter 15, so not everyone was happy with the Jerusalem council. Paul and Barnabas were victorious at that council. And some Judaizers, unhappy with the results, Go up to Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were and start to undermine their work and start to try to reintroduce the old divisions between Jewish believer and Gentile believer. They go there to undermine the gospel work. And we read that even Peter, even Peter succumbs to this and Barnabas as well. In fact, the language of this scene is given to us in Galatians. Paul talks about this as he describes Barnabas' cowardice. But the way Paul describes it is very interesting. Notice what he says in Galatians 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he, that is Cephas or Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision, the the Judaizers. 
The rest of the Jews there in the church joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by the hypocrisy. In Paul's language here, there's the idea that he could somehow understand that Peter could be duped by this effort by the Judaizers. But his language suggests that he is shocked at what happened with Barnabas, even Barnabas. Now, what's interesting to note there is Barnabas is never rebuked by Paul. Peter is. Peter goes, Paul goes on to talk about that in Galatians 2 verse 14 in the next sentences. Barnabas is never, is never rebuked. Why is that? I don't know. Perhaps the rebuke of Peter was enough. Or perhaps this faltering on Barnabas's part was so small, so temporary, that Paul never had to rebuke Barnabas. He quickly recognized his error. But he was a man like us, a man of faults. One final scene, I'll quickly wrap up with this. One final quality is Barnabas's fidelity to the flawed. Shortly after that event in Antioch where Barnabas stumbles and we see his cowardice in that moment before the crowd of Judaizers, we find this very interesting event when Paul says, okay, it's time now to go on another missionary journey. And we read of this very well-known account when Paul and Barnabas fight over the details of the next missionary journey. Paul approaches Barnabas. Whatever, whatever lack of trust had, had, had arisen because of the dispute or the problems in Antioch, that had passed. So Paul approaches Barnabas and says, let's go on another journey. Barnabas says, yes, but under one condition. I take John Mark. Now, on the first missionary journey, as we're going to see next week, John Mark is a deserter. He had deserted the team. But Barnabas wants to give him a second chance. This flawed individual, Mark, Barnabas wants to give a second chance. And he stakes his own life on it and says, I will go with you, Paul, but we will rehabilitate this man, John Mark. And Paul, on his part, says, no way. The ministry is too difficult. John Mark is not proven, not mature. And it says a sharp disagreement arose. A state of irritation arose. And they split. Now Luke doesn't appear to pick up sides on this. He doesn't assign blame. I think, as one scholar says, in this regrettable amount, in, in this regrettable event, neither man shines, neither Barnabas nor Paul. The ministry is not damaged, but it is divided, and we could even say it's doubled. Barnabas does take Mark, and he heads in one direction. Paul takes Silas, goes in another. Moreover, history proves that both efforts were blessed by God. Paul takes the gospel to a new region, and what does Barnabas do? He rehabilitates John Mark. He rehabilitates John Mark so that later on, Peter will say of John Mark that John Mark is his son in the faith. And even Paul, at the end of his life, will make this fascinating comment about John Mark when he says this, 
Pick up Mark and bring him with you, Timothy, for he is useful to me. And of course, as we know, John Mark goes on to write one of the Gospels. So we see that God blessed both efforts. Paul takes the Gospel in one direction. Barnabas rehabilitates this amazing man, this flawed man named Mark. Now just in summary, let me say a few final comments about Barnabas. Barnabas possessed, as one writer says, that rare gift of insight which enables men to get beneath the surface and to discover the deeps of another's soul. And often in the face of popular prejudice, Barnabas was courageous enough to act as he saw. Or as Robertson says, Christianity can never forget the work of Barnabas, even though he does not reveal the same genius of Paul or John. He was a man for a critical period of early Christianity and helped to tide over the transition from Jewish to the Gentile phase of Christian activity. Barnabas was a beacon of optimism. Let me encourage you men as you study his life. Let me ask you, are you men that others would say, yes, he is a son of encouragement. And he is a son of encouragement. He is one who lifts up the spirits of the downtrodden. He's one who's dedicated to the destitute. He's one who will advocate for the ostracized. This one over here, he is a bridge builder. This is one who uses encouragement to protect the unity of the church. This one is a son of encouragement. This was a man around Paul, Barnabas. And the challenge I leave you with is to become a Barnabas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we are challenged this evening, both by the many, many, amazing traits of this man Barnabas, as well as by his faults. We pray that you would take these truths and press them upon our lives. Enable us to measure ourselves against this great early church leader, to see how we measure up, particularly in the area of encouragement. And may you transform us all into men like Barnabas, about whom Others will say, these are sons of encouragement. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.